Hey, my name is Ben Krause. I'm the campus pastor here at our Noblesville campus. I want to say good morning. Thanks for being here, especially if this is your first time with us this morning. We're so happy uh, that you've chosen to come and to be a part of this service with us. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, there are Bibles uh, in the seats around you, maybe on the floor under some seats around you. If you don't own a Bible, we'd like to invite you to keep that. That's our gift to you. But Luke chapter 7 is where we're going to start this morning. Last weekend, we began this new series titled Life Apps. And if you didn't hear that message, it was all about the principle of application. And here's the thing. Most of us carry these around, don't we? Uh, we've got our smartphones, maybe you've got a tablet or some other device, and, uh, and one of the, the great things about these devices is being able to run apps, and there's all kinds of apps out there. There's apps to help us with uh, our health, there's apps to help us with our finances, there's apps to help us if we want to lose weight, there are apps uh, for entertainment, you name it, and there's an app for that, right? But here's the thing about apps. As helpful as they are, the reality is that just putting an app onto your device doesn't help anything. I mean, you've got to actually use it. You've got to actually apply the principles. You've got to actually do what it says. And the same is really true for all of life. It's one thing to know something, but but it's quite a different thing to take the knowledge that you have and to do something with it. What matters is that we apply what we know, and we find this principle as it relates to God's word in James chapter 1. This is a verse that we looked at last week, James chapter 1, verse 22, where it says, Do not merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. So we don't approach the Bible, we don't approach God's word just to fill our heads with more knowledge. Knowledge is good, knowledge is beneficial, but there has to be an application of that knowledge out of an obedience to Christ for us to see spiritual fruit in our lives. And that's what we're after here. We're after spiritual fruit, we're, out of, we're after uh, lives of obedience uh, towards Christ that will bring God glory. So I'm really looking forward to the rest of this series because what we're going to do over the next five weeks is we're going to look at five specific life apps that we believe are really significant in the life of every believer. And today I get to introduce life app number one. And to do that, let me start with this question. Has there ever been a time in your life when someone has done you wrong? Has there ever been a time when someone has lied about you, cheated you, misrepresented you, attacked your character, broken the trust in your relationship? Has there ever been a situation like that in your life? Probably not. You haven't had that happen, have you? Well, I think the reality is that that if we had the time this morning, every one of you could walk up on this stage and tell a story about how someone did something that hurt you. And maybe for you, it was a business partner that that made a decision that was financially lucrative for them, but it really left you in a tough spot, maybe maybe left you in in a bad financial position. Maybe it was a friend or maybe a former friend who misrepresented you to to someone else or said something negative about you behind your back. Maybe it was a spouse or, or a loved one who was unfaithful to you in that relationship. And though the details may vary from person to person, all of us have a story like this. And the reality for all of us is that to some degree, what, what people have done to us, that shapes us. What, the things that they've done to it, 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 it alters the course of our relationship with them. It maybe alters the course of our relationship with, with other people in our circles. And ultimately, it might even be affecting your relationship or your thoughts about God. And so, so these things, these wrongs that are committed against us, they have the power and the potential to shape us. 
but to an equal or even greater degree, how we respond to the things that are done against us have the potential and the power to shape us. And don't miss that because your response to the the hurtful, wrong, evil things that are carried out against you have a tremendous power to shape your life. And that's why today's life app is so important because today we're going to talk about forgiveness. It's the life app of forgiveness. And let me just say right up front that I understand that for some of you, the pain is too fresh Okay, what happened to you is too recent, and the last thing that you want today is is for me to stand on this stage, not knowing the details of your story, not knowing, you know, all that has happened, and, and to stand up here and to tell you that you need to forgive. I understand that. I get that. But here's what I want you to consider, that while it may be too fresh for you to deal with this today, In time, I I am hoping and I am praying that you will come to realize that there is only one way out of the pain and the frustration and, and the bitterness that you're experiencing. And the way out is not found in a life of unforgiveness. And when the time comes and you are able to process this, I am hoping and I'm praying that you will remember the things that we talk about today. So don't check out, okay? Let's go on this journey together. There's a story told about C.S. Lewis uh, that really sets the stage for where I want to go today. C.S. Lewis uh, was walking across campus one day, and and on campus there was a a group of theologians who were meeting around a table, and they were debating what's the difference between Christianity and all other faiths. And as C.S. Lewis passed by, one of the theologians noticed him there, and they said, Professor Lewis, could you answer a question for us? What's the difference between Christianity and all other faiths? And C.S. Lewis stopped, and he answered with just one word. He said, grace. And then he walked on. That's it. It's grace. It's what's supposed to set us apart as followers of Jesus Christ, that we would come to know God's love, and we would embrace his forgiveness in our own lives, and then that we would transfer that love and forgiveness into the lives of the people around us. It should be our identity as Christians, forgiven people, forgiving people. Our worship pastor, Josh Rogers, did a great job several weeks ago of distinguishing between grace and and mercy. You might remember uh, that he talked about the fact that those two words are used together a lot, but their definitions are, are very different. Mercy finds its definition within the context of punishment. And so w- when there's a punishment that you deserve, but that punishment is withheld, that's mercy, okay? Grace, on the other hand, finds its meaning within the context of a gift. And so when there's something that you don't deserve, and yet you're given that anyway, that's grace, And what is the thing that that we didn't deserve? Well, it's forgiveness. And so this morning, as we move throughout this time together, I I want you to to really think about grace within the context of forgiveness. You're going to hear me use both of those words almost interchangeably because they're so closely associated. And I want you to keep that definition of grace in mind, that grace is being given something you don't deserve. And that thing that you don't deserve is forgiveness. And we're going to look at two different passages this morning that address grace and forgiveness. And we're going to look at two aspects of forgiveness that should come into play in the life of every follower of Jesus Christ. The first is this. It's the reality of forgiveness received. It's forgiveness received. If you're taking notes, feel free to to follow along and take that down. We're going to look at at, uh, Luke chapter 7. We're going to start reading in verse 36. If you're using one of the Bibles from your row there, it's found on page 721. 
But let's start reading together Luke 7, verse 36. It says, Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to that Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. And let me just pause right here. The story opens with an invitation. Okay, Jesus has been invited by a Pharisee. We're going to find out later in the text that this guy's name is Simon. So Simon has said, Jesus, why don't you come to my house? Let's have dinner together. And so Jesus accepts the invitation and he goes to Simon's house. And the text says that he reclined at the table. Now, this is going to be very important for us to understand as we picture in our minds what's about to happen in this story. In Jesus' day and in Jesus' culture, when they ate a meal, it wasn't at a high table with high chairs sitting upright. In fact, I'm going to demonstrate this for you. Their, their table would have been very low to the ground. It maybe would have had some cushions around it. And as you came to the table, uh, you, would, you would lay kind of like this, kind of resting on one arm, facing the table with your feet out extended away from you. And, and they did this for, for, I'm sure, several reasons, one of which being uh, that feet are nasty. Okay, just in general, feet are kind of gross. But in Jesus' day, even more so, everyone wore sandals all the time and they walked everywhere. And so they were always kicking up dust and manure and all kinds of nastiness. And this was on their feet. So the last thing you want is, is someone's feet next to your face or your food. And so Jesus is reclining at this table with his feet extended away. Okay, I want you to keep that picture in your mind of how Jesus is laying at this table. Now, in verse 37, the text says that someone else comes on the scene. It says, when a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Now, the Bible describes this woman as one who had lived a sinful life in that town. And most Bible scholars would agree that this woman was most likely a prostitute, okay? And everyone knew who she was. They knew what she had done. Everyone knew that she was a sinner, and her sin had become her identity to the people in this town. But somehow, this woman, this woman who had lived a sinful life, she had heard about Jesus. Maybe she had heard him teaching on the streets. Maybe a friend had told her about the things that Jesus was saying and teaching. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly how it happened, but something has happened. And this woman, this woman who had previously only been identified by her sin, has now found hope in the man reclining at this Pharisee's table. And as Jesus is reclining, again, with his feet stretched out behind him, she can't contain herself. And it says that she began weeping. And with her tears, she washed Jesus' feet. And with her hair, she dried his feet. It says that she poured perfume on Jesus' feet and that she began to kiss his feet. And it's just this incredible outpouring of humility and gratitude and thankfulness because for the first time in a long time, this woman had found hope. And she doesn't care who's watching she doesn't care about their comments or their disregard for her actions. She's heard about the grace of Jesus. She knows that she needs it, and she has to respond. Well, Simon the Pharisee is watching all of this take place. Look at what happens in verse 39. It says, When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Now, don't miss, the text says he said this to himself, okay? So these words didn't come out of his mouth. He's thinking this in his head. But Jesus, being fully man, yet fully God, knows exactly what's going on inside of Simon's head. He sees the pride. 
He sees the lack of grace in this man's heart, and he's about to call him out on it. Jesus tells him a story, verse 40. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Well, tell me, teacher, he said. And can't you almost hear the the indignation in Simon's voice? Well, tell me, what are you going to teach me? I know everything there is to know, right? Verse 41, Jesus says, Two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Let's just call it $500 and $50, okay, for our modern context. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? And Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. And you have judged correctly, Jesus said. And then Jesus is going to go right to the heart of this matter. Look what he says in verse 44. He says, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. And watch this. Jesus says to the Pharisee, but he who has been forgiven little loves little. Man, can you feel the intensity of this moment? Jesus' words are directed straight at the heart of this graceless Pharisee. And Jesus says, you love little because you have been forgiven little. And isn't that an interesting phrase? Why, why would Jesus say that? And why, why is it that Simon had been forgiven little? Was it because Jesus was withholding forgiveness from him? Well, I don't think that's the case. I mean, as we look at the life of Jesus, we don't see him withholding forgiveness from anyone who desires to receive it. It, Was it because Simon just had little to be forgiven of? Jesus' story about two men owing two different amounts might lead us to think maybe that's where he's going, but I I don't think that's what Jesus was getting at. No, I believe that, that the Pharisee had been forgiven little because he had not come to grips with the reality of his own sin. I mean, he's quick to identify this woman as a sinner. She's filthy. She's a prostitute. I can't believe you're letting her touch you. But what the Pharisee failed to see was the sin in his own heart. And because of that, because of his own unwillingness to look critically inside of himself, he hadn't received the grace that Jesus came to offer. You know, a lot of people like to categorize sin, We all do it to some extent, I think, maybe just subconsciously, but we categorize sin. And so we make these lists, you know, from the least offensive sin to the greatest offense. And so if we think about this, you know, we think about lying. And lying is a sin. We can see that in the Bible, but but it's, you know, it's not high up on the list. We even maybe call it just a little white lie. And so maybe lying is, is low on the list. And then we maybe bump up just a little bit when we start talking about stealing and stealing certainly a sin, but, you know, if it's just a pack of gum or it's a, you know, a couple bucks out of your mom's purse, I mean, it's, it's maybe worse than lying, but it's, it's not super high up. But then maybe we get into some greater offenses and we, we start talking about sexual sin and, and maybe pornography is there or, or maybe adultery. And now we're starting to get into the big leagues and, and maybe we talk about things like murder and we're moving higher and higher on this list into to things we don't even want to think or, or talk about this morning. We formulate these sin lists from the least offense to the greatest offense. And then I think what we do is we start to, to categorize people and we categorize ourselves based off of these lists. And we think, well, well, I did this, but, but man, he did this. So he, I'm way better than he is for sure. I'm not perfect, but I'm better than him. And she, she didn't do this, but, but she did more than this. And so she's right. And we think about people this way, don't we? 
And there are probably some good arguments for why we think one sin is worse than another, and certainly uh, sins have different earthly consequences. But I think we need to understand something this morning, and it's this, that while, while sin, uh, while co- the consequence you know, on earth here for, for sins may be different, that the eternal consequence for all sin is the same. From what we would consider the least offense to the very greatest offense, the eternal consequence is exactly the same, and it's separation from God. That's what sin does. It separates us from God, and sin would be anything that's outside of God's will, anything that's outside of his plan for your life. And when we move outside of that circle of God's will, when we involve sin in our lives, we are separating ourselves from God because God is holy, and he is perfect, and he cannot be within the presence of sin. So while the earthly consequences may be different for different sins. The eternal consequence is the same. And the Pharisee in this story failed to see that truth. He failed to take his eyes off his own sin list where his sins were much less significant than this woman's. But you'll notice that while the the two men in Jesus' story owed very different amounts, they both were still very much in debt to the money lender. And that's what the Pharisee missed. He was still in debt regardless of what his sins were. And because he missed that truth, he had been forgiven little, and he loved little. You know, as a pastor, I interact with two groups of people uh, somewhat regularly. And the first group of people, they, uh, they don't see anything that they've done that's really all that bad. They, uh, you know, they've lived a good life. They wouldn't claim perfection, but maybe they come from a good family and, and they haven't done any of the, the really big stuff, you know. And so in their minds, there's not much to be forgiven of because they just haven't done anything that's really that bad. The second group of people I interact with, they're the opposite, and they see what they've done as so bad that there's no way they could ever be forgiven. Their sins are maybe a little bit higher up on this man-made sin list. Maybe others are withholding forgiveness from them, and so they're finding it hard to forgive themselves, and they find it hard to believe that God would ever forgive them. And while these two groups of people are at extreme opposites, at extreme opposite ends of, of how they, f- they view their sin, my response to both groups is exactly the same. My, my response is that what you've done or haven't done is really insignificant. I don't need to know the details, the dates, the events, none of it. I, 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 because how we rank sin in our human minds, it doesn't matter. The eternal consequence is the same. It's separation from God. But the remedy is also the same. The remedy is the forgiveness that God has freely given us through the blood of Jesus Christ, that God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Look at what Jesus says to the woman in verses 48 and 50. He says, your sins are forgiven. And then on down in verse 50, he says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus has offered forgiveness And when we put our faith in him and we accept that forgiveness and we're able to go in peace regardless of what our sin was or where it falls on our list, the list doesn't matter. The eternal consequence is no longer there. Jesus has taken our sin upon himself. He's paid the debt that we owed. And when we submit to his lordship, we are brought back into a right relationship with God, forgiven. And this woman at Jesus' feet, she experienced that forgiveness for herself. She didn't just hear about it. She embraced it. She received it. 
And I would guess that in that moment, she had a better understanding of what grace was than any definition I could give you here this morning because she was given something she did not deserve. And that thing she was given was forgiveness from God. Now I need to to, uh, turn a corner here a little bit. The first two-thirds of this message, and I say two-thirds of this message because my messages are always 12 pages long, and we're on page number eight in case anyone's keeping track, okay? Uh, But the first two-thirds of this message were for absolutely everyone. Everyone in this room, everyone outside this room, the truth of God's forgiveness and grace are, are truths for everyone. But I need to take this one step further for those who are here today and have already submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, who have embraced his forgiveness, those of us who have embraced that in our lives. And I realize there are people here this morning who are all over the place on this chart of where you are with Christ. Maybe you're here for the first time hearing about Christ for the first time. Maybe you've been coming for a while. You're exploring uh, what a relationship with Christ looks like. But there are those of us here this morning uh, who, who have taken that step, who have entered into this relationship with Christ. And I need you to know that, that what we're about to talk about, this isn't optional for you. If you've moved into a relationship with Jesus Christ and you've received his grace and his forgiveness, what we're about to talk about, it's not optional. And it's not a surprise, is it, what I'm about to tell you? I mean, if, you, if you've been forgiven by Christ, the command is that we need to forgive others. That's not news to anyone, is it? I mean, if it is, if you're scratching your head a little bit like, oh man, I would have never guessed that's what I'm supposed to do. Uh, there's a reference on your notes page, a story that Jesus told in Matthew chapter 18, Uh, where he makes this command very clear. And and we're actually not going to move into that passage this morning. Okay, they print the bulletin on Tuesday. My sermon isn't done until Thursday, so sometimes it's a guessing game. But but I want to encourage you in your own time to go and to read that passage. If if there's clarity that's needed about what the command is, go to Matthew chapter 18, read that passage on your own. But I'm afraid that the reality for too many of us is that we've received God's forgiveness, but we've stopped short of transferring that forgiveness into the lives around us. We hold on to that offense, we hold on to that grudge, we hold on to the bitterness and the anger, and we fail to share the very grace that we ourselves were in such desperate need of. And maybe you're thinking, man, you don't even know. You don't know the details of my story. You don't know what they did to me. You don't know how they hurt me. You don't know what they took from me. They don't deserve to be forgiven. But let me be very clear about this. As followers of Jesus Christ, our question cannot be, what do they deserve? Because as human beings who have sinned against an almighty, holy, and perfect God, we did not receive what we deserved. If we're going to ask that question of them, we have to ask it of ourselves. And there's not a person in this room who has deserved forgiveness. I don't care how good you've been. I don't care where your sin ranks on the list. You don't deserve forgiveness. That's why it's grace, because God has freely given something that we did not deserve. No, the question cannot be, what do they deserve? Instead, the question has to be, what did I deserve? And what did Jesus do for me? And what is he calling me to do for others? And we're going to see that the Apostle Paul makes it very clear that the answer to that question is show grace. Because once forgiveness is received, it then has to be transferred. It has to be transferred. It has to be moved into the lives around us. This is how forgiven people respond. We forgive. 
And it's really easy for me to say that, and you already knew it, but how are we supposed to do it? I mean, these situations are complicated, aren't they? I mean, this stuff is messy. The things that, that have happened to us and all the details and how it all comes to, it's just a mess sometimes. How do we apply the life app of forgiveness? Well, the Apostle Paul gives us some clear and practical instructions in Romans chapter 12. I want to take a look at that together. Romans chapter 12. And again, for followers of Jesus Christ, these are not suggestions. We cannot read it that way. Uh, we, as James says, we have, to, we have to actually do this. So it's on page 70 if you're using the House Bible. Um, but Romans 12, starting in verse 17, it says this. It says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. And let me just stop right there. And if you've got a pen with you this morning, I want you to take it and I want you to circle that second use of the word evil. Just circle that in, in, your, in your Bible there because here's what I'm not saying this morning. What I'm not saying is that these things that have happened to you, they're not really that big of a deal. Just get over it, you know, move on with life, put your big boy pants on and quit crying. That's what I'm not saying to you. In fact, what I'm saying to you is the things that have happened to you, they were wrong. And what the Bible says is that they're evil. That's what this says, that those things that have happened to us, with e to us are evil. We're not denying that, but we are going to deal with it. And the route that Paul is about to take us on is a very different route than, than where our human minds would naturally want to go. My mind naturally wants to go towards, okay, you did something evil to me. I'm going to do something evil back to you. That's, that's me and my sin nature. That's me and my flesh responding to what someone has done to me. But that is a very different path than where Paul is going to lead us today. He says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So he says, as far as it depends on you. Okay, so understand that there's a piece of this that is yours to own. Okay, there's a piece of this that, that you've got to take ownership of. In my house, my wife and I, we have this phrase that we use that, that my response is my responsibility. The way that I respond, that's what I'm responsible for. My response is my responsibility. That's my piece to own. But understand also that there's a piece of this, of this situation that you're in, that's not yours to own. Their response is not your responsibility. And so this is going to take some discernment. And it's going to take some wisdom on our part to, to know what is mine to own and what is, is not my own. And then it says, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And again, if you're reading along in, in your own Bible, I want you to take uh, your pen and I want you to circle that word peace. Okay, because what the Bible says is, is live at, at peace with everyone as far as it depends on you. You know, as much as you can, live at peace with everyone. But what it doesn't say is live, you need to live in partnership with everyone. And I'm afraid that sometimes we interpret this, this word peace and we think about the word partnership. That's not what the Bible is calling us to here. There's a, there's a huge difference between living at peace with someone and living in partnership with someone. Let me give you an example. Again, uh, if you think about it in the context of, a, of the business world, and maybe you're in partnership with someone in the business world who you know is, is acting with a lack of integrity. They're, they're steamrolling over people. They're, they're not someone that, that you need to be partnered up with. And so, again, you may need to bring some, some spiritually wise people around you to discern what it is you need to do in the context of that, to live in peace with that person, but not to be in partnership 
with that person. And I realize also that there are some of you here this morning who have been hurt by a spouse. And so as you hear me talking about the fact that we're called to live at peace with everyone but not partnership with everyone, you're wondering if, if what I'm saying is that you can just leave. And certainly there are, there are some passages that the, ver, the, the Bible talks about, you know, within the unfaithfulness in marriage. I, I just want you to know that I am not advocating for, for you to leave your marriage. I don't know the details of what's going on in your marriage, but, but I am saying this, that within the context of a marriage, if you know that your spouse is involved in some things that are not bringing glory to the Lord, your role is to not be in partnership with that sin, Okay, what it looks like between you and your spouse, I don't know. I don't know your exact story, but you don't have to partner with those sinful actions. You don't have to approve of those sinful actions. But as far as it depends on you, live at peace. Live at peace. That's what this is saying. And then verse 19, he says, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. And how many of you here this morning would just be honest with me and tell, and tell me that, that you have spent some time after something bad has happened to you thinking about all of the things that you should have said, all of the things that you could have done in that moment to really stick it to the person that hurts you. Anyone willing to admit it? Angie Smith's laughing, so I'm going to call her out. I won't call anybody else out. I know Angie really well. So uh, we do that, don't we? We spend a lot of time thinking about the revenge that we're going we're gonna to bring to the person who wronged us. Man, the next time I see that person, I know exactly exactly what I'm going to say. I know exactly how I'm going to act. I'm going to make them look like an absolute fool, and everyone is going to know that they wronged me, that I was in the right. We do that. But let me, let me ask you this. I, I want to hear you answer this out loud, okay? You get to talk in church, but based on verse 19, whose job is it to avenge you? Tell me out loud. Who, who's, whose job is it? It's God's job, right? Okay, question number two. Answer this one out loud. When you avenge yourself, whose job are you assuming? I think sometimes the reason that we don't want to leave this in the hands of the Lord is, and we want to take control of it is because we don't trust God to do what he says he, he'll do. We think, man, I'm going to forgive that person. You know, they're going to be off the hook, and that's not fair. But is that what your Bible says? Because that's not what mine says. Mine says, it's mine to repay, I will avenge, so says the Lord. Listen to me. God is a holy, sovereign judge, and he is fully capable to judge fairly and accurately and objectively, which, by the way, is something that we're not able to do when we are the one who has been wronged. And what Paul is saying here is you do your job and trust God to do his it's freeing. It's so freeing to trust God that, that he will do what he says he will do. So what's your job? Well, verse 20, on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And in doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. And we love that part, don't we? We, we feel like that's our little Christian revenge there or something, right? But, but what's Paul talking about? Well, he closes with this. He says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And, and finally, if you're taking notes, I want you to circle in your Bible that second use of that word overcome. And I sure hope you didn't borrow someone else's Bible this morning because they're going to wonder why you circled so many words in, in the book of Romans this morning. But, but here's the thing that Paul knows. He knows that at the end of the day, you've got two choices. You can either be overcome by evil, and we live there sometimes, or you can overcome evil with good. And this is where 
we need to live as followers of Jesus Christ because, folks, overcoming is what this is all about. When you hold on to past hurts, you don't overcome. It stays with you. It festers inside of you. But as you go on this journey, the grip of hurt and bitterness begins to release and you become an overcomer. There is a freedom to be found in forgiveness. Don't be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good. Listen, if this life app of forgiveness came with an instruction booklet, I think it would have four simple steps. I don't mean to oversimplify this. I just want to give it to you in the clearest way possible. Step one would be, be this. Receive God's forgiveness. Some of you, again, the wound is too fresh, and all you need to do is sit right here at step number one. Just rest in the truth that you are a son or a daughter of God. You are forgiven. You are blameless in his sight. I don't care what they said about you. I don't care what they did to you. You are loved by God. And some of you, the person who you need to forgive the most is yourself. And please don't miss this. A holy, righteous, perfect, sovereign God has offered you forgiveness. And yet you can't find it to forgive yourself. Come on. That doesn't even make sense. God loves you. He has forgiven you. Step one is embrace that truth. Step two, transfer that forgiveness to others. When that forgiveness of Jesus Christ has taken root in your heart, it's time to transfer forgiveness to the people around you. Step three, let God avenge you. Trust God to do what he says he'll do. You do your job. Trust God to do his. And step four, Overcome evil with good. That's your job. As a follower of Jesus Christ, commit to it that you're going to overcome the evil that was done to you by responding with goodness. And the fuel for responding in this way is the Holy Spirit of God living inside of your heart, reminding you of what it is that we deserved, but, but, but what it is that God gave us, what it is that God offered us, what he has done for us through his son, Jesus Christ. I want to invite you to bow your heads with me. I'm going to ask you to, to close your eyes, and uh, we're going to move into a time of prayer, but I want to ask you first to reflect on a few questions, just a few questions for you to bring this into context in your own life. I, I wonder, who is it in your life that, that maybe you've been withholding grace from? Is there a name that comes to mind? Who have you refused to forgive? And as that name is in your mind, I, I want you to consider standing before a perfect and holy God, what is it that you and I deserved? And how did the Father respond to you? I realize that there are some here this morning who have never embraced the forgiveness that God has offered. You've heard about it, maybe even for the first time this morning, but you've not yet received it. And for you, Maybe it's time to make that decision to, to follow Christ and to receive his forgiveness. You can be done with your sin list this morning. You can walk out of here a new person, a new creation. If that's you, I want you to know we're going to have some folks up front after the service who would love to talk and pray with you. I want to pray over you specifically right now. Father, thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ. Thank you, uh, Jesus, for your obedience to the Father and, and for the sacrifice that you made on our behalf. Jesus, you took the punishment that we deserved. You offered us forgiveness and a righteousness that we could not attain otherwise. And Lord, I pray that your spirit would be moving in this place, 
convicting us of sin, convicting us of righteousness, and moving us toward lives that bring you glory. Make us bold in that this morning, Father. And Genesis Church, still with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, in a crowd this size, I know that there are some who have experienced the grace of God who need to go and extend it to a brother or a sister to offer that forgiveness. They, they don't deserve it. They might not even want it. But in view of what God has done for you, it's time for you to offer it. It's time to find freedom from the grip of bitterness. If that's you today, I, I'm going to ask with every head bowed and every eye closed, would you put your hand in the air so I can pray for you this morning? If you know that there's a step uh, of forgiveness this morning that you need to take, could I pray over you? Father, find us faithful, not, not to just hear your word, but to do what it says. Let the fuel for our forgiveness of others, Lord, be your Holy Spirit inside us, just reminding us of the forgiveness that you have offered to us. And Lord, remind us that as messy and as complicated as this act might be, that you understand completely as a father who watched his son be spit on and beaten and mocked and murdered for sins that he did not commit. That's what our forgiveness cost you. Father, we thank you for grace. Find us faithful to transfer it to those around us. May we never lose sight of the wonderful cross, Lord. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.